Good morning, Woodside. Bless the Lord. I thank you for having me on your 139th year anniversary. That is amazing. God has kept you by his, his awesome power, and I thank him for you. I, I know you guys are making an impact in this community, and I just want to just give God the glory and the thanks. Just give God the glory for a minute. Praise his holy name. Please don't take that for granted. Many churches come and go, but I'm so glad that he has kept you once again. Now, I'm coming uh, to do my best, and I know you have a, a very, very good preacher and teacher in Pastor Matt. So if I fall behind or I don't keep up to him, I ask that you withhold the booze and the tomatoes for another day. Not today, because it wouldn't be a good look on your 139th year anniversary. That would not be a good look. But real quick, a uh, quick background. Uh, in 1996, uh, my wife uh, and I were married, and it was a beautiful day because according to Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I can truly say since that day, God has shown me more favor than I deserve. I thank him for that. So after we were married, roughly four months, my wife gave her life to Christ. Both of us were unbelievers. And in uh, December of that very same year, I would give my life to Christ. And it wasn't something I was planning on doing, but uh, my wife, and her sister, and their, her brother-in-law were going to a New Year's Eve uh, church uh, service, and I, I wasn't trying to go. Now, those of you who are old enough, you remember Dick Clark and New Year's Rocking Eve? I was in my robe, and that's all I was going to do, but my uh, brother-in-law, after sitting in the car for a moment, came back in the house and persistently talked me into coming. You know, it was cold outside, I was relaxing, I was good. No, bro, you go. But I am so glad because once I heard the word of God, which interestingly enough, all year I had been reading, I had been going through, but it was just head knowledge. And head knowledge doesn't get you saved. Information doesn't do it. It has to be a heart change and a, a, a receiving of Christ and a union with Christ that brings salvation. And on that night, I gave my life to Christ. And since that time, uh, the word of God, the people of God, and preaching has been my passion. So over the next 13 years, I would grow through reading, studying, and mentorship under a great pastor who brought me before an ordination council after about 13 years. And they ordained me after rigorous questioning to be a pastor. Um, and I was installed as the pastor of Cross Community Baptist Church in uh, Queens Village, New York. Any other questions or anything else you want to know, you can, uh, we can speak after uh, the sermon. But I ask you to be patient with me. And I, I pray that God will do a great thing um, through his power. So at this time, I ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. For today's sermon, I'm going to spend the majority of time in verses 1 and 2. But I will be touching the surrounding verses so that we can have some type of context. We always have to get the context right. So my three points for this morning's sermon are render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Point number two, render to God what is God's. And point number three, render to God prayer for Caesar. 
Please pray with me. Father, may your word bring light and life in this place. Please use a simple man like myself to share the eternal truths of your word. Whether it's for conversion and salvation or edification and sanctification, may you receive all the glory. Amen. Amen. Point one, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to pay taxes anymore? Wouldn't that be a great thing? We would have so much more money to buy even more stuff that we really don't need. But I praise God because some of us, we would be responsible and we would invest for our future. We would save, but we also know there are those of us who will be close friends to those three fatal words, might as well. Might as well. You know what I'm talking about. You go uh, to the store, you want to buy a pair of shoes, and they're having a buy one, get one half off sale. So what do you say? Might as well get another pair. Who knows when they're going to have another sale like this one? Tomorrow. <laughs> or the week after. And I actually knew a guy who went to get an oil change and came out with a new car. <laughs> and so he's explaining to me, Mike, you don't understand. My car was getting old. And I just started walking around the, 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 the showroom. And the, the, the next thing I know, I'm signing papers. And my car was old anyway. So I said, might as well get another car. Right? But the thing about it is we learn that unless we have some type of restraint, we're prone to go off. For the Christian, our restraint is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And although there would be so many ways that we would find to buy things that we really don't need, if we didn't pay taxes, what type of government would we have? If we had a government at all. And some of you are saying, well, who needs government? History has shown us that if we do not have a government over us, we would be similar or just like those people spoken of in the book of Judges. And for those of you who know, as you read the book of Judges, every once in a while you come through a certain phrase that will say, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And also if you know the book of Judges, you know it was, it was a very wicked time evil time where the hearts of men came out and all types of, 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 of vicious acts were done towards one another. But we don't have to go back that far. There's a BBC News article dated November 18, 2004, and it speaks about Somalia. Somalia at that time was the only country in the world that did not have a government. So how did that work out for them? Life there was poor, brutish, and short. Those who could afford to travel had to watch out for the militiamen. They would have to buy armed guards to keep them safe as they would come to the roadblocks. And if they didn't have any protection, they would be molested. You had rival warlords clashing with one another. 
shooting and slashing one another. And of course, there were innocent bystanders who lost their lives just for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Many of the schools were used as refugee camps. And it would be okay for a little while, but when the flood season came, the toilets overflowed and you would have uh, diseases spread, diseases like dysentery, malaria, tuberculosis. And many of the aid workers were kidnapped by the militiamen and held for ransom, for huge ransom amounts that people couldn't pay and they would lose their lives. So many of the aid workers who weren't captured yet pulled out, leaving the people with no help at all. Many people who were sick couldn't pay the $3 to see the doctor so that many uh, diseases that were curable or preventable were not treated and many more people died. The situation was horrific. So we thank God for governing authorities, which means we should at least expect to pay for those governing authorities, especially since God is the one in charge of instituting all governing authorities. And that's the very issue that Romans chapter 13 opens up with. As I stated, uh, as I stated previously, our main focus will be on verses 1 and 2, but at this time, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Let's read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now let's move back to the first century at the time of this writing. At that time, life for the Christian or even the average citizen was brutal. There were attacks from every side. If you were born a Jew, but now you uh, made a profession of faith in Christ, you were automatically cut off from your family at that time and also in the future when you might have expected to receive an inheritance, you would be left with nothing. You'd be left to fend for yourself. If you were uh, a slave, but then you gave your life to Christ, you now had another problem added to your social status. You were uh, in jeopardy of being treated even harsher <coughs> by your slave master. And if you were a preacher or a teacher of the gospel in first century Rome, your life could be taken from you at any moment, day or night. If you were a former zealot 
who lived in opposition to Caesar and to all kings who were not of their religion, but now you embrace the gospel and became a Christian, it may have been hard for you to lay aside your feisty way so that just by the way you carried yourself in anger, not being transformed completely, you may have ended up in trouble just by the way you looked, just by being recognized by somebody else who said, that guy is a zealot. He doesn't follow the ways of Rome. And it was under these conditions and to these different personalities within the church body in Rome that Paul wrote the words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Notice how the scripture says every person, not only every Christian, no matter your background or giftedness, but every person everywhere must submit to the governing Authorities. Why? To stress God's sovereignty over every person in every nation. I can hear some of their members right now. Is Paul serious? How can he expect us to be subject to such ungodly treatment from such ungodly people? Doesn't he know that this man, Nero, ordered the ship that his mother was traveling on to be sunken. But when she made it and she swam to shore, he had his military waiting there to strike her down. Doesn't Paul know that this man, Nero, Nero had his first wife executed by lying on her and saying that she committed adultery? And Paul must know that this man, Nero, has been pouring tar on Christians, setting them on fire and using them as human torches to light the streets of Rome. And he wants us to be subject to him? That makes no sense. How could he expect us to do such a thing? Well, first of all, it wasn't Paul's idea. Because all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. And that includes these very words so that it did not originate with Paul, but it came from God. Peter, Peter echoes the same thing in First Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And yes, that's a hard pill to swallow, beloved. But perhaps it might help if now we went back a few verses and try to catch the context from the other way. It might make this pill a little bit easier to swallow. So if you can go back in your Bibles to chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, hopefully this will help us to be able to understand why this would be told to these people who were suffering. 1217 in Romans. It says, Repay no one e evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Mm. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Wow, it's been rough. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, okay, that sounds good, right? Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Whoa. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Nope. Overall, these verses do not make it any easier. And beloved, that's the point. The Christian road is a different road. It's a road that will take you through some valleys that sometimes you just don't want to go through, but it's exactly where you need to be. The primary reason that every person is to be subject to the governing authorities is not that you will get into trouble if you're not subject to them, or even that obedience is necessary for maintaining social order. Those are excellent, pragmatic, and secondary reasons that Paul will give later, but they are not the primary reason that he gives at the beginning. We see that reason as verse 1 continues. It says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason, the primary reason, that we are subject to the governing authorities is because the almighty, omniscient, and sovereign ruler of the universe hand picked those authorities and placed them there, and that should be reason enough. This is a different world than the world that I grew up in. Back then, when your parents, who were placed over you, told you to do something, and you didn't agree with it, or you thought it didn't make sense, if you were ever so bold enough to ask why, 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 the conversation would be over with one final statement, and you know it, because I said so, and that's why. But now that we're older, we're adults, and we'll see many leaders of our country, and we'll say to ourselves or somebody else, why? Why? Why would God put him or her in that position? And the Bible tells us why. God says, because I'm the almighty, omniscient, and sovereign, sovereign ruler of the universe, and I said so. And that should be the end of discussion, but unfortunately, many times, it's not. Here's the thing, beloved. Just because you can't figure out how or why God would put certain people in positions of authority doesn't mean that God did not have anything to do with them being there. Some Christians have five Bibles sitting around their house. And they will say, God had nothing to do with that crazy man or woman being in that position. On the contrary, according to all five of those dusty Bibles, God had everything to do with them being there. Even the wicked ones? Yes. Even the wicked ones. What comes to my mind uh, immediately is two wicked rulers who if they were over us we would argue vociferously that God had nothing to do with them. If we had Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar over us, we would say no, no way. I don't know how they got there but God had nothing to do with them being there. But just a few chapters previous to, to Romans 13 if you went to Romans 9 verse 17, you would see Paul quoting Moses, as he says what God told him to tell Pharaoh, he says, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. God birthed Pharaoh and guided his heart 
like a stream of water in his hand. Yes, Pharaoh was an evil ruler and oppressor of God's people, but as evil as this man was, it was God who raised him up in order to bring him down in the presence of his people and in the presence of the surrounding nations, that he would prove that Jehovah alone is the God of gods, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, and I will be glorified upon the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, the other evil and wicked ruler, was a vicious man. He captured God's people and was able to plunder not just any temple, but God's temple, carrying off the Babylon, the gold, and the silver objects that God's priests used to worship him. But long before Nebuchadnezzar started his siege against Jerusalem, God spoke of what he himself would do to his own people through Nebuchadnezzar. According to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, from the first year that God installed Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he used Jeremiah to begin telling the people of Judah to repent or else. In Jeremiah chapter 25, if you move down from verse 1 to verses 8 and 9, it states, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to fulfill his purposes. However, when he became too full of himself, God worked to humble that man. And he showed him once again that Jehovah alone, not Nebuchadnezzar, was king of kings and lord of lords. In Daniel chapter 4, God shows his sovereignty and power over Nebuchadnezzar as he drives him insane and sends him to wilderness school where he spent seven years. There were seven hard years, but once Nebuchadnezzar was ready to graduate, he gave his speech at his commencement ceremony, at his graduation ceremony. And here's what he said. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. <coughs> no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, God told Nebuchadnezzar something very interesting to me. He told Nebuchadnezzar that he's going to be there in the wilderness until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So what I need to know is why did it take seven years? Because after the first night of being in the wilderness and chewing grass, I would have been like, Lord God, you know I'm so stupid. 
You know me, Lord. I should have known long ago that you are the most high who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever you will, Lord. Can I go home now? I, why did it take seven years? Because the hardness of his heart. And we always have to guard against the hardness of our heart so that when we come to church and hear a sermon, we're like, well, that's good for her. We miss it. We, we, we're like looking at other people who can benefit from this sermon. But don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Because the prophet went to him, Daniel went to him and a year earlier and said, you're taking too much pride in yourself, O king. But humble yourself, lest your dream comes true and the thing happens to you. Humble yourself, O king. There's also something else that Nebuchadnezzar uh, 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 said in his speech that every Christian needs to truly believe deep down inside. He said that God, he said that everything God does is right and all his ways are just, even when the president isn't the one that you voted for. The slander and hate speech that I've heard over the past eight to 12, 12 years is bewildering to me. It's as if those people who slander and, 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 and just have the, the hate coming from their lips or from their furry uh, keyboard, it's like they never read the word of God to understand the sovereignty of God. It is not by accident or luck. God is driving the world to the destination he has already figured out. He's not going like the open fear says, day by day, based on what man chooses to do. To get to God's destination, he has to put certain people in place, in line, to make decisions that we won't always agree with. So when you see a post online, when I see a post online, a few things come to my mind. You learn a lot from Facebook. You learn a lot about people. You learn a lot from people who supposedly know better. But the comments that they put, it makes you wonder, is it a, a, a lack of faith? Is it a misunderstanding of the interpretation of the text? Because it's definitely immaturity and it's definitely a divisive spirit. What good can come from going back and forth with someone else over a candidate that God installed? What good does it do to go against the heart of the Bible that speaks about unity from Genesis to Revelation? When Cain asked of uh, God, am I my brother's keeper? He blew it. He blew it right there. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. We all are our brother's keeper from that statement to the royal law, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Yet some will still argue, are there no conditions under which we must speak out or even resist? Must Caesar always be obeyed? Which brings us to point number two, render to God what is God's, which we derive from verse two, which says, 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Notice verse 1 says every person. Now in verse 2 we read whoever. Once again, God's sovereignty over every person within every nation is on display. This verse is not speaking of those who resist ungodly and immoral government, but of those who rise up promoting lawlessness, anarchy, and violence against the common authorities. These people will face judgment, and not only temporal punishment from the authorities, but also eternal punishment from God if there's no repentance leading to salvation. More on that later. Intelligence Institute, Volume 2, while addressing one's submission to authority, he writes, for this reason, we ought not to doubt that the Lord has here established a universal rule. That is, knowing that someone has been placed over us by the Lord's ordination, we should render to him reverence, obedience, and gratefulness. For they have attained their position through God's providence, a proof that the lawgiver himself would have us hold them in honor unless they spur us to transgress the law of God. Then we have a perfect right to regard them not, since they are trying to lead us away from obedience to our true lawmaker, God, who reigns in the heavens and throughout the earth. End quote. I believe Calvin is 100% on this point. Whoever is in a position of authority is by God's providence and should be honored. However, there does come a time that we ought to speak out whenever the government transgresses the moral law of God or when they exercise a lawless, tyrannical power, endangering the lives and the property of its people, then they need to be resisted. But I must say, for the feisty in our midst, you know who you are, who believe, you believe that you have to speak out or post something every time a feisty thought runs across your mind. The Word of God says there's a way you can do this without quarreling and at the same time show God-like wisdom towards all people. We see a great example of this in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus' enemies came to him with a trick question. They asked, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, they thought that if he said it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, then the very people who were following him, mostly were poor and mostly hated tax collectors, would start to look at him sideways and say, wait a minute, is he, is he correlating with Rome? Is, 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 is this just a trick? Is he really trying to get us to agree with Caesar? But on the other hand, if Jesus said that they should resist Rome by refusing to pay their taxes, then his enemies could denounce him to the Roman authorities as an insurrectionist or a rebel. So Jesus asked for a coin. And he asked them, whose face is on the coin? And they replied, Caesar's. So then Jesus told them the famous quote, that you render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The first part of the answer reinforced Caesar's authority, and even in such unpopular matters as taxes. But the second part is where he limits Caesar's authority. Rendering unto God what is God's means there are going to be limitations as to how far we follow the states. And one of those limitations has to do when it comes to 
preaching the word of God. Any government that says you cannot preach the word of God has to be ignored because we have been given a great commission. And we could think of uh, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 4 and in chapter 5 when him and John were preaching and the authorities told them they must keep silent, but they responded by saying, judge for yourselves whether, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were threatened and then released from prison, but then they went right back to their preaching. After they were arrested again in Acts chapter 5, they were reminded that they were given strict orders not to teach in his name by the high priest, but they replied, we must obey God rather than men. This position was used by the people who would come after the apostles, even up to the Nazi era, when you had people like Tori Ten Boom, some of you are familiar with her, during the Nazi era, where Christians in Germany faced a wicked government with open anti-human practices. Tori Ten Boom resisted this wicked agenda. And because she was a Christian who understood what it meant or what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself, she took some Jews and she hid them to preserve their lives. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is about. We don't take that story and use that to go out and fight against the government everywhere we see oppression. But when we come across somebody who is hurting, somebody who needs help, we don't turn the other way or cross the street. We love them as we want to be loved. We bless them as we want to be blessed. The person that God has brought into our sphere, our circle, we don't say, well, you don't believe what I believe. We reach out as the Samaritan was the furthest thing from the Jewish mindset. As this woman was a Christian, she said, it doesn't matter that they're not Christians. It was also the position taken by Martin Nehemiah who was a German theologian and Lutheran pastor who preached and preached and preached and was warned to stop preaching. And what did he do? He preached and preached and preached until he was thrown in prison. After being there a while, a fellow minister, and I use that term loosely, came to visit him. And the minister spent a long time trying to convince him, Martin, if you just hold down your speech, you can be out of here. Martin, if you just would not say certain things, they will let you go. Finally being so upset with him, his friend said, Martin, I just don't understand why you are in prison. At that point, Martin Leomola looked at him and said, I just don't understand why you are not in prison with me. <laughs> Unable to persuade people to do what is right should not be a cause for you to get upset. It's a cause for you to examine your own thoughts because maybe the problem is with me and not them. Although the state has a God-given authority over its citizens, the authority of God is greater. Yes, we are citizens of whatever state, city, or country that we pay taxes to, but we're also citizens of heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul, on the one hand, could tell the Roman uh, soldier in uh, Acts 21 and 22, 
I'm a citizen of Rome. But then on the other hand, he could write to the church at Philippi and say, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a dual citizenship. But once again, our allegiance goes to God. Our higher allegiance goes to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Therefore, those who know God must worship and obey him, even if it means disobeying Caesar. Other than that, as Christians, we are to recognize the authority of the state and be the very best of its citizens. Point three, render prayer to God for Caesar. Render prayer to God for Caesar. For those who struggle with submitting those leaders that they disagree with, how about trying this? Try submitting to the Bible. <coughs> Try submitting to the word of God, which says that we should be praying for those leaders vigorously and with intent or intentional, I should say. Whenever you feel you're about to type something that's even borderline inflammatory, instead of typing, take a moment and pray for that minister of God. Minister of God, that heathen? That's what the word of God calls him. If you recall in verse six of Romans 13, we can read it again if you don't believe me. It says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Amen? Wow, y'all kind of quiet on that point, but that's okay. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it literally. <laughs> literally. So what do we do? We pray for that. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. How vigorous and intentional should our prayer for leaders be? Paul uses four different words to express four different aspects of communication with God for all people and leaders. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. That's right. Thanksgiving, because certainly there is something that you can be thankful for. How much better off we'd be if every time someone who claims Jesus as their Savior is about to slander the person he doesn't agree with, or speak with hate dripping from his lips or her lips about anyone in authority. If instead, this verse came to mind and immediately they began to pray for that person, what a difference that could make in our lives and in our nation, as we would have millions of Christians praying for all who are in high positions. Prayers of salvation, prayers of sanctification, prayers of righteousness, Prayers of integrity. Instead of us getting high blood pressure every time we see or hear something we disagree with politically, now we need a quiet and peaceful life because we have prayed for them and we're trusting in the fact that God knows what he is doing. God knows what he's doing. But unfortunately, we are so covetous for comfort 
and squeamish at the mere hint of suffering that we acquire temporary amnesia and forget the promises of God. We forget that even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. We forget that after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We forget that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal wing of glory beyond all comparison. We forget that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We forget that in Christ we may have peace. In the world we will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. We forget that we should rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And finally, we have forgotten that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall uh, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or sword or nakedness? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what do we do? We pray. We pray some more, and then we believe that God knows what he is doing. Three points of application. Application number one. Change your communication. Change your communication. The salvation that God has worked in us cannot be removed. So it should have an impact on how we carry ourselves in every facet of our lives, but especially in our communication. We must be committed to communicating love to those we don't agree with. It's all a part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Are we as law-abiding citizens fearful of the government? No. But what we should have is a healthy fear of sinning against a holy God and the one uh, one of the ways that we show that reverence is by subjecting ourselves to the people he chooses to govern us and let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How many here want grace? We all want and need grace, but how many here have a hard time extending grace? How many here have a hard time speaking words of grace when somebody comes with something we don't agree with and we don't like the way they said it? Can you show grace? Think about the grace that God shows you every minute of every day. A holy God. I think we miss out on the holiness of God because we're like, well, I'm just a man. I'm not perfect. Well, repent and confess the sin. Don't make excuses for the sin. Application number two, substitute online opinions with prayer. Substitute online opinions with prayer. One thing we must always remember is that the authority that be cannot develop morality. 
Only God can do that through salvation by Jesus' blood upon Calvary's cross and the transformation of the renewed mind through the Holy Spirit and his word, not the government, not your favorite president or city official. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are the channels and the tools that God has given us to bring change to the nation in which we live. And if we would only believe that, it would keep us from belittling our brothers and sisters in Christ by posting unchristian, divisive, and mean-spirited comments on social media. And it would keep us from being judged for those divisive words we use on our podcasts, blogs, or even face-to-face. And that's for those who know Jesus Christ. Which brings us to application number three. Inspect your fruit today. I'll be like, what? What's he talking about now? Bear with me. Inspect your fruit today. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Although he began this passage, by speaking about false prophets, I believe he expands it to, to include a whole bunch of religious people. Because in the very next verse, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the question to ask yourself today is the most important part of the sermon. If you dozed off for 30 minutes and you're just waking up, perfect timing, because here it is. Ask yourself, what kind of fruit are you producing? What kind of fruit are you producing? Pull out your magnifying glass and look at your life and examine your life. Examine the words that come out of your mouth. Examine your relationships. Examine what you're watching on the the, the television or the computer or your smartphone. Examine your time. How are you spending your time? We should constantly be inspecting the type of fruit we're producing. So many times when I speak to somebody about how are you living for God, They'll bring up something from 10 years ago that they used to do. They'll talk about something that they did with their wife five years ago or for their children three years ago. It's a constant growth. And either you're growing in the spirit or in the flesh. And on that day, when you stand before Christ, many of you are going to to be in for a terrible shock and awe, a terrible uh, awakening. Today is the day to inspect your fruits. And if you're here today and you know that you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have bigger problems than just your slander, gossip, and overall online ungodliness. Because according to the word of God, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So on the day of judgment, all of your sins will be before you and before a holy God. And what will you do? Because the word of God is clear. There is a price to pay. 
and you will have to pay that price yourself, all because you were too proud to trust in Christ and his shed blood on the cross. But if you're here today, it means that it's not too late. It's not too late. If you're here today, it is not too late. The only way to escape eternal conscious torment is to believe in Jesus the Messiah now, today. So do it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And I'm going to end with this. Why is that the only way? Because it was Christ alone who was pierced for the transgressions of all who would believe. Because it was Christ alone who was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Christ alone was the chastisement that brought God's children peace. And by Christ's wounds alone, we who believe are healed. And so glad God's wrath upon us has ceased. Please don't let another day go by that you don't commit to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you want to learn more about who he is and how to do this, please speak to Pastor Matt, BJ, Peter, any mature brother in this church, myself, after the sermon, there is nothing more vital to your future. Let us pray. Father, we need you to help us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If we truly have died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God, then we will control our responses in our communication with others. We will show mercy, knowing that mercy triumphs judgment. And we will do more praying than complaining, as this displays a truly grateful heart for all the things you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.